0: A podcast with an exclamation point. My guest this week is Matt Jacobson. In most circles, he's known as the head of market development at Facebook and Instagram. But Matt is a man of many passions and talents. He is a surfer, a collector, a writer, a photographer. But to me, he is a shepherd of good design. Matt and I discuss growing up in California, driving across the country hunting for Eames furniture, and his one in, one out editing philosophy. Let's get to it. Can I call you Matt? Sure. Matt, please.
1: thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Nice to be here.
0: So, I uh, Ben Clymer is a mutual friend of ours, and I was talking to him, and I was like, oh, what are some other good guests? Uh, and I had heard of you, you know, kind of the, the lore of of Matt Jacobson and the, the wide world of, of collecting that you've, you know, and, and art and, uh, and design that you have, and he was like, you got to get Jacobson on. You got to get him. So, the bar is set kind of high, but you don't have to worry at all, because... Luckily, you're hanging out with me. This will be
1: fun. No, it's humbling. Ben's, Ben's great and guy's such a high taste level. So I'm, I'm flattered to be part of it and glad I'm here in New York.
0: Yeah. So um, I want to talk just a hair about your background and some of this because you are like a great um, industry insider in terms of, you know uh, you know, I'll just list some of your accomplishments here. You were one of the very first bloggers. Um, you know, you had this blog. Can I say the name of the blog? Sure, please. So, uh, I need the traffic. <laughs> <laughs> so you had, uh, it evolved to grown man style, but the first one you had was, um, uh, oh gosh,
1: focus on the donut. Yeah.
0: Focus on the donut. And so I think, and this was in 2002, right? I believe, right. That Before I was it was at. fashionable. Yeah. Before. Yeah. All the, all the kids were trying to have, you know, before continuous lean, before all of that other stuff, um, there was focus on the donut and, and I was, you know, I went and read through these and, you know, a lot of it was just like excellent sort of timeless advice about how things should fit. And, you know, little did I know that, you know, you were also like within, in and outside of these industries. Um, you know, like you've, you've worked for a few other companies, you were early employee at Facebook and, you know, so you've, you got to see both sides of the coin in terms of like, say someone like me or other peers of mine, you know, we had these blogs or these style blogs, but we actually weren't really walking in that world. And you were doing that. And so that was just kind of like an exciting thing uh, for me, you know, to see that and see that perspective. But I want to talk a little bit about, you know, how you got into that. Um, Like, what were some of the things that got you into, you know, caring like so much about your appearance, um, in terms of like tailoring and
1: yeah, you know, that sounds really foppish, so I try to not, you know, <laughs> think of it that way. But focus on the donut started you know, it, it was a something my dad used to always say, Focus on the donut, not on the whole and he was just a very positive person and it's really good advice when I kind of start spinning on kind of, you know, things are not great, then I'll think about okay, focus on the on the donut, not on the whole and that was really You know, for me, it was just cathartic to write about the things that I thought were important. A lot of it was growing up, you know, I'm a third generation Southern Californian, grew up on the beach. My dad was a surfer and volleyball player. I'm a surfer and volleyball player. And, and a lot of what focused on the donut was about. You know, those stories were things that were important to me as a kid or growing up and like the smell of rubber surf mats when we were kids or, you know, kind of these pieces or things that really mattered, you know, that we thought were, you know, that mattered to me and that were kind of the lore of how I, you know, and kind of the ethos of how I grew up. And so, you know, I, I worked in the entertainment industry for most of my career. I was a, you know, a suit and tie guy, you mm-hmm. know, kind of always. And my dad was a, always like, you know, even though we lived on the beach, he was a super preppy Brooks Brothers, three button sack suit guy, nice. you know, wore his pants super short, you know, with Alden, shell cordovan bluchers before that was fashionable and, and you know he used to always wear red socks and he just he had a ton of style and and so that kind of inspired me and then when i started working i was in, when i was in college i worked at a traditional men's clothing store in westwood village near ucla called at ease it okay. was kind of like the is it still around no it's not around anymore and it not. was but it was great because it was one of these you know kind of the it just was timed perfectly i it's like kind of chicken and egg thing like did it really make the whole preppy thing kind of happen in the west coast or right. did it happen because the preppy thing was happening on the west coast but it was very much just kind of Newport beach, Westwood, Pasadena kind of style thing of, you know, Norman Hilton, kind of the high end clothing there, Southwick, you know, three button sack suits, Corbin pants, you know, and that's, you know, Gitman shirts. And that's what we, you know, I worked there in college was this great time. I still have a lot of friends who worked there with me. Um, And we just all got into that style and that vibe you know you know we we had a place like there was stuff we were all interested in when we came there, mm-hmm. and then it was just a place where we could kind of explore that and kind of make it a job while we were in school
0: and so how How long were you there just throughout college? yeah
1: I worked there well my for three years of my four years at u c l a
0: nice and so you, earlier you'd mentioned that your dad and you you grew up in in Southern california and your your dad um you know he wore Brooks brothers. What sort of work did your dad do? He was a builder he was, he was a builder. a developer yeah nice um so Some of the other like you know research and things like that that I was doing um, on you is that like you also manage and surf quite a bit because you live near uh, another mutual friend of ours, JJ, in Manhattan Beach. Uh, Is would you say that like some of the like California culture? I mean, even like seeing you know other photos and stuff of you, you know, the there's there's no socks. There's there's this casual ease to you know just your your style. Do you think how much of that like was uh, contributed by just where you were at. and Yeah, I mean, out.
1: I, you know, I'm, I'm would define myself, the beach defines me, right? My happiest times, the happy place for me is being near the water by the beach. I, you know, I, I grew up in Manhattan beach. I surf with this, a lot of the same guys I grew up with. I play volleyball with some of the same guys I grew up with. And, you know, when I'm, you know, like my summers, I live like I was, I did when I was 10 years old, you know, surf in the morning, play volleyball, lay in the sand, surf some more, play some more volleyball and go home. So <laughs> it keeps you in shape, right? Yeah, It's, it's not, <laughs> listen, that's my, you know, I feel very blessed to live there and to be able to do the things that I love doing. And so for me, the beach is my, you know, that's my meditation. Right. How, how old were you when you started surfing? Yeah, nine years old, 10 years old. I mean, never like, there was never like this conscious decision to start surfing. You just, when just you go up there, you, you just, you just do. Yeah. you know and you know we start we start standing up on before boogie boards we'd start standing up on inflatable surf mats and then we got belly boards before boogie boards and then we started surfing on cut down I mean my first surfboards were were cut down longboards and you know it's just one of those things that we did and it's very much a part of who I am and I think that you know surfing is one of those few sports that defines really who you are from a lifestyle standpoint you know as opposed to Kind of playing a, a ball sport, a bat and ball, or a ball sport. That's very true. Yeah, yeah. It really. I mean, kind of what you wear, kind of how you think of the world, what music you like, what's important to you, connection to nature and the ocean. And these are really kind of defining things for you if you grow up there.
0: Yeah. Did you did you skateboard at all, or was that? I just did. Like, yeah.
1: yeah. Skateboarding was transportation for us. I mean, it was never like this conscious decision to be like, oh, I'm going to go skate now. It's be like I need to go somewhere. And the skateboard was transportation. Skateboard for me was transportation more than a bicycle. Oh,
0: yeah. I mean, I, you know, me and then other people who've been on here before, you know, skated. I a, Another gentleman was on here, Antonio Changoli. He, he talks about how much he skates and stuff all the time. And like for him, yeah, that's his meditation. And like, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've, uh, I tried to surf once at, uh, at Trestles and like, you know, tried to camp out and surf and it was
1: Trussell is not a place to learn how to surf. You go down the beach yeah. <laughs> a half a mile to um to San Onofre you'd be a little better yeah, off. Yeah,
0: it was it was not good. Yeah,
1: <laughs> but skating I you know I, I, I own a small surf brand called Birdwell Beach Bridges and uh, my partner in the business and creative director is Nadas Kapas who's a you know one of the oh, nice. kind of seminal skate figures. Yeah. Um, so I get my, my dose of kind of high end skating spending time Notus and kind of the the adoration and adulation he gets i mean he and i've been we've been on the streets of hong kong together and kids will run out and ask for his autograph it's pretty pretty amazing but for me skateboarding listen, i was never skated as good as not but again it was mostly transportation
0: right well you just mentioned birdwell and i've been wearing birdwells for oh geez i don't know 10 7 8 10 years or whatever almost now mm-hmm. and like to me they were because i remember i wore them and at the you know, my girlfriend, my wife now was like, those are really high waisted burn wells. And, uh, but that was like how, I mean, that's kind of how they've always been made. Right. I mean, they they had the, the surf surf Nile right fabric and, uh, you know, it's funny cause I've, I bought those and then I had, you know, the, what's the other brand that all the, like the Mr. Porter brand that,
1: Oh, some of the expensive stuff? Yeah, the
0: expensive stuff that just hasn't really hold up held up. So. Yeah,
1: I mean it does you know, we you know, and, and Nodis feels the same way and Jeff Clausen who runs Birdwell for us. I mean, we all wore Birdwells as kids. I and mean, that was the, it, it took, Nottis and I started talking about Birdwell 15 years ago, and it took us, you know, 12 years to get the company. And oh, wow. It yeah, because
0: it, it was a primarily family-owned It was a family-owned right? business since
1: yeah. 1961, uh, 55th anniversary this year. And, you know, it was one of those brands like you that, like you, you, you either have never heard of it or you love it. Yeah. And you know, we've changed the – we have we fixed the fit from the high-waisted. I saw now, there's some updated fit We've changed the, <laughs> the fit now to make them a little more contemporary. We lost the Velcro for a button fly. But you know, still the last board short made in America, still made in the same facility in Santa Ana. And we just feel like it, it, our timing was really good with Birdwell. We have a great – you super high quality product. We took the friction out of the buying process by building a strong e-commerce business. And, you know, it's about, I think we're, there's this moment in time right now where I think people are looking to buy less stuff by buying better stuff. Yeah. And Birdwell kind of fits that, you know, for people.
0: Yeah. Well, the, the buy less and buy better. That's, that's like, you know, the, a lot of people's sort of MOs and, and, uh, one of the things that I read uh, quite a bit about you is you're quite the design collector and, and uh, art collector or not not so much art but i mean like furniture um and uh a friend of mine is is a picker and and you know goes out there and i'd read that you have gone out to michigan to the herman miller factories what what are the some of the things that got you into uh, specifically herman miller but furniture collection in, in general
1: yeah, I mean, it was, I loved, you know, I love good design and fell in love with Eames design and grew up with Eames furniture in my house when I was a kid. My parents are both from Venice, California, um, which was where the where the original Eames design office was, 90, right. 901 Washington, which is now 901 Abbott Kinney. My mom grew up on Brooks, which Abbott Kinney turns into Brooks, so she could always, that building was always there, so we always had this connection to the Eames, uh, to Eames design. And really, honestly, not only did I used to go, I didn't, I didn't, I I've been to the Herman Miller factory, but there was a time where I had a guy who was picking for me in Western Michigan, which is where Mm -hmm. Herman Miller is. And, you know, the Herman Miller employees would, you know, they would have a lot of this furniture and this is, this goes way, this is pre eBay. Yeah. Right. And, um, (laughs) You know, we would, he would pick and buy a lot of stuff and twice a year I'd, and I was working, I was working at 20th Century Fox at the time and News Corp, you know, subsequently and I would take part of my vacation time and twice a year would fly to Detroit, rent a Penske truck, hit a couple shops, dealers I knew in Detroit, drive to Grand Rapids, stay in Grand Rapids, pick up whatever he had picked during, and this is like, this is before you could email a picture. So he would be sending me, you know, Polaroids of stuff he had gotten. Um, we'd fill up a Penske truck. We'd go hit a couple of former Herman Miller employees' houses that we knew. Um,
0: how, how did that go? I mean, how, how did you go about contacting him? You he just...
1: would do it. This guy would do it. And, okay. you know, and then I ended up, I mean, I probably did this 10 times. Wow. 10 or maybe even more. And we'd pick up and we'd load the truck up. And we'd drive the truck back to – we'd go back through – go down through Illinois, through St. Louis. We knew a guy who was a dealer in St. Louis. We'd go see what he had. We'd you know, either get more stuff or trade some stuff we had out of the truck. We, then that was kind of the last of it. Then we'd you know, keep driving Route 66 through um, – you know, go through Missouri. We knew a great place to eat in Joplin, Missouri. And we we kind of think about that the whole way. We'd get to Joplin and go to this place <laughs> was called Red Hot and Blue as a barbecue place. We'd do that. And then it's kind of a long haul from there to back to Los Angeles. And but there'd be amazing, amazing halls of stuff. And this again, this is pre eBay.
0: Yeah, I mean, were you buying this stuff to sell or flip? Or- yeah, I
1: would buy it because I thought it was meaningful and important. I thought it was just there and and a lot of these former Herman Miller employees, you know, they didn't really they had no attachment to the furniture, I right?
0: Mean, this is just like in their garage or something. Yeah. They like. could have been
1: making ball bearings. It just happened to be the Herman Miller factory there. Not, <laughs> you know, not a ball bearing factory. Right. And, and, you know, Herman Miller would give employees an Eames rocker when wow. their child was born and it would have a little plaque on the back with, you know, kind of, you know, commemorating the birth of their child. Like anything that has my kid's name on it, I, was, I can't even make myself get rid of. And like, these things were like in garages oh. and like and like and I had more baby rockers you know than like I couldn't believe people would sell them but there was a, it was fantastic because we'd find amazing stuff when the stuff was you know a lot of prototype pieces and you know just stuff that we fell in love with like you know you know um, the, the George Nelson CSS, you know, the comprehensive storage system, yeah. the shelving units, I, there was a dealer in Lansing that had 36 poles of George Nelson. And so I became obsessed with CSS and we'd buy, we'd go into people's houses and disassemble it and <laughs> cart it off. And, <laughs> and, you know, there was crazy stories. There was, I remember the guy who was picking for us there called me one day and he said, Hey, I just bought a giant set of George Nelson, thin- Rosewood Thinage cabinetry. It was three giant dressers, a bed, two nightstands. Oh, my God. Like, it was an incredible hall. Yeah. And so like it was more than I knew what to do with. So I remember I called a dealer here in New York. There was a store called Form and Function. Uh-huh. Um, and I called the guys who own Form and Function because they were equally as obsessed with this stuff as I was. And I said, I got this stuff, and like I don't have room for it. There was a desk as well. There was a beautiful rosewood thin edge desk that actually had a built-in rosewood jewelry cabinet. I think it was nuts. And so I said, the only thing I want is that. I said, if you guys know who to sell this to, like, you know, they said, oh, yeah, we'll send us pictures. So I literally had to take pictures, mail them the pictures of um- <laughs> I, I, So the guy told me he had bought this stuff for nothing. I flew the next day to Grand Rapids, rented a truck, loaded it in the truck, drove it back to Manhattan Beach. The next day, a truck picked it up, brought it to New York you know, minus the one piece that I wanted to keep. Right. Um, they sold it to a woman in Beverly Hills. The so stuff went back on a truck back to Beverly Hills. And <laughs> it was, it was, you know, it was just exciting to me. It was just like fun. It was like this whole thrill of the hunt, you know, of finding these things and meeting interesting people, um, you know, who, who had acquired this stuff of one, one of these trips we bought, uh, 32 Eames Lounge and Ottomans, Rosewood Lounge and Ottomans, Holy! from one guy who had them in a barn. Yeah, in, clearly if he had 32. In a barn in Michigan, and he was retiring and wanted to buy a backhoe. And so I just want to sell these for enough to be able to buy the backhoe to start my backhoe business. Right. So there's one point, one haul. I mean, I wish, I mean, again, I wish I had a picture of it. We had a... Penske truck with 32 Eames Lounge and Ottomans, all Rosewood in there. So how how did this
0: all get started? I mean, you were talking about pre-internet and some of these people like, you know, how did you come into contact with some of these? You know, there was,
1: there were classifieds. There was a really active classifieds on AOL, um, for, (laughs) for modern furniture, right? There was a magazine called Deco Echoes, and they had a pretty, you know, vibrant classified section and that's how, that's how we would do it. And so the furniture thing was like again. It was for me. It was finding great pieces, kind of rescuing them. Um, Would having, you restore them or no? No, like I, I was, and I, I, you know, we'll we'll talk about it with cars and furniture and watches. I, I'm very much about original condition and about not touching things at all. So, right.
0: I mean, that's kind of like the the collector's sort of. Ethos, right? like Yeah, there
1: was a time. That's that's a fairly new phenomena. I mean, there were not people who you know, kind of. I still with cars. I have now that are unrestored and original. I still get asked all the time. Oh, so when are you going to restore it? Are you going to paint it? I'm like, absolutely not. You know, like I found this car and it's like in this condition. You know, and it's like lived that way since 1955. I'm not going to touch it.
0: Well, I mean, we can we can pivot to the cars. I mean, it sounds you're mentioning 1955 mm-hmm. cars. What, what's I mean this there's a there's a common line that's that's going through a lot of this collecting and and you know obviously this isn't to just accumulate this is back towards the objects and
1: things yeah like and it. i and i keep i keep very little you know i you know i i try to you know i i never i i'm i'm very conscious of not being a hoarder and so right. i i moved from a i moved from a big house to a very small house next door. Um, to where my, my kids were living Mm -hmm. and I went from like a big house to like a under 900 square foot house. And it was this great opportunity to kind of build an incredibly edited, really small space before people were doing that. Yeah. But it also required me to get rid of a ton of stuff. So, and in doing that, I said, okay, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to keep the things that really matter to me that I care about. Right. I don't want things to define me ever, but these are things that I love or have a story or are meaningful to me. Sure. And if I find other things, they need to be good enough or better to replace whatever they're replacing. So this one in one out rule has applied to kind of everything for me, whether it's art or furniture or cars or watches. I have a defined number of things that I say, okay, that's what I need Mm -hmm. or what I, I want. And I'm not taking any more than that. So it's a really good filter on, you know, on what I keep and what I get rid of. Did that like where did the one in one out come from? Was it just It came from living in an under nine hundred square foot house? <laughs> so and, this was just self
0: imposed. Yeah. Not- well,
1: no, my and my wife, who's you know an incredible, she's an incredible editor and curator. You know, she's incredibly disciplined around you know making sure that we stay that I stick to that. She's very good at it, kind of you know from a you know genetically, right. and I I I wasn't, and now. It were, you know, it, to me, it's like, th- it's the best. I mean, to the point now where somebody gives me a t-shirt, like I really have to think, well, like, do I really, am I take this t-shirt? Cause if I take this t-shirt, <laughs> it's going to replace another t-shirt. And I really like the t-shirts I have now. So the furniture stuff, I kept the things that I really wanted to keep. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I gave them to people. I sold some pieces to people, Wow. but I felt like I was the kind of, you know, I was this transport mechanism to get these out of the monastery of Western Michigan you know, and, yeah. and get them in people's hands. Because again, it, this was pre eBay. Yeah. And this know? is, you're also getting them to, you know, not
0: that it was, they were just wasting away in Michigan, but they're now going to people who are really going to try to like, who are going to cherish these pieces and they're you know, yeah. which is what they were made for, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, they were meant, I mean, they were meant to be furniture, <laughs> right? And <laughs> to enjoy and, and sit on it. Yeah, yeah. But they were great, you know, they were great design. And, you know, now, I mean, it's funny because there was a, there was a picker, uh, which most pickers consider to be a pejorative term. Um, <laughs> there was a picker who I remember, I remember having this conversation with him and he's like, you know, he, he kept referring to the pig. I'm like, what are you talking? What's the pig? He goes, eBay's the pig. It eats everything. <laughs> and so, so now it's funny. My friends, you know, who still are furniture, like guys who I met in the furniture collecting where we become very good friends. Um, you know, we still refer to eBay as the pig. Like he'll call me, man, did you see that watch on the pig? And because <laughs> <laughs> it, it eats everything. And there wasn't any way for people to see this stuff. And so I remember going on eBay. So I've been on eBay since 1997. Wow. So I think eBay started in like early 97, late 96. So I was like early. And I remember searching for Eames and there were 40 items that wow. had Eames in the title. And you think about that now, it's probably 40,000. Yeah, at least. <laughs> so, yeah, there was no way this stuff was getting out there. But the, yeah, it was, uh, so this ethos of kind of not keeping too much, mm-hmm. you know, and kind of being, you know, somewhat of a ambassador or Johnny Appleseed of making that furniture available to people yeah. was something that I thought was was fun. And I love driving cross country. There was just something to me really cathartic about it because, getting out there, meeting people, just seeing the country. There's a lot of country, I think, as you realize, you know, after this election, there's a lot of country between L.A. and New York. Yeah, a lot of different
0: people, different culture and backgrounds right. and priorities. And mm-hmm. You get out
1: there, I mean, it, it was funny, man. I I had an old um, Vietnam-era, like, helicopter pilot jumpsuit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd wear that, and we'd just be, like, driving that big Penske truck, me and a buddy, and who's who a picker. And a dealer now, a really great dealer. And we, that's what we would do, man. We would just hit. We knew the motels we were going to stay. We'd park, you know, if we could park the truck in front of the room, that was key. And right. throw that jumpsuit on and a fresh T-shirt and a pair of drawers and go. So, yeah, it's like, you know,
0: some people, they'll go on vacation, take time off. They'll go to Disney World or wherever. Mm-hmm. And you're... You're
1: spelunking through barns for yeah, furniture. No. Listen, that was not my only vacation. <laughs> no, but, but it was. uh, Yeah, it was just good. It was just good to me. I used to love just kind of. You know, it sounded crazy, but it was. I loved doing it. No, you know,
0: it's, that's it's incredible. Um, but what about some of the, the the cars you had said? I mean, surely this this one in one out can't apply for vehicles too. No? Yeah, no, it does. And uh. and,
1: and and you know, I, I I have too many cars, but I you know I really loved. Um, and still do vintage Mercedes, you know, kind of pre everything pre the W123, which is the, you know, the 300 TDs, you mm-hmm. know, kind of the 1985, I think is the last of the W123s. So anything pre that, you know, not old, old stuff, but so I, I kind of went on a search and quest for unrestored, you know, Mercedes that were iconic of these different periods. So starting in the, you know, kind of early sixties through 83 And I, I put together a nice, you know, not a giant, but a nice little collection of unrestored original cars, um, through the help of a, you know, a guy who's a great Mercedes kind of restore mechanic. And we found great cars and those cars became incredibly collectible in the last five years and prices went pretty nutty. And so for me, it was time to get rid of them. You know, it was, if I can't drive them you know if it's a car i can't drive it's too valuable to that's drive true. then i don't want it. You know i don't want to have a car museum. Yeah. And if it's a watch that's too valuable to wear then i don't want it because it's not again i don't want to have it in a it doesn't do me any good to have it in a box in a safe and pull it out and show it to people. I that's not that's not me. And so the car thing to me it's been very cathartic again over the last, you know, couple of years to sell some really great low mile original mercedes I, I sold a 280 sl 71 280 sl with 19,000 miles on it what? at the gooding auction at, at pebble beach this summer and it was an incredible car but to me it was like i couldn't i couldn't drive it i mean the car yeah. 19,000 miles great color you know it's kind of you know you're, you're driving around la and you know people are texting and not paying attention and now i'm like my god you know i i somebody's not much this, between you and yeah <laughs> i want this car to stay original and if someone whacks it it's not going to be original anymore yeah and so i was stoked to sell it somebody got it loves it it's now part of their collection they can either drive it or not and you know it was the best example of a 280 sl unrestored 280 sl probably in the world you yeah. know and i sold in the last year a 280 se 3. 5 Cabriolet. It was a Southern California car with 50,000 miles on it. The top had never been down on it. Right. It had every registration sticker um, since the early eighties. The car had not been driven other twice a year. This woman who it came from would drive it around the block in her neighborhood twice a year, but hadn't put stickers on the car since, you know, 81, 82. And again, it was another this unbelievable original car, too valuable to drive. And. How how did how did this come up? I mean, do these? I just search for these things. It's hard to out Google me. Yeah. And um <laughs> I just I I found it and a friend of mine found a couple of these cars and so I I got them and then it was just time to to let those go and I just didn't want I don't want to have too many of things and I certainly don't want to have too many things that I can't use. Right. Wow. I mean <laughs> This is that's pretty
0: incredible of the at least the, the amount that you know, like yeah, you, you may be massing it, but this is you're basically like shepherding the these goods on to the next either generation or a person who's gonna appreciate that.
1: Yeah, I mean I think that's really important. Again, I don't wanna I don't want a museum. I don't wanna I think you become you can become, you know, imprisoned by things. Yes. Right. And I see this with people, you know, we're interested, very interested in architecture. You kind of modern architecture as well, and you see people who inherit some of these architecturally significant houses and become prisoners you know of the house, right yeah, you know it's this house that their parents built and they grew up in, and now it's become this iconic thing that's neither a house nor you know it's just it's it's just this thing right, and their life becomes that thing, and I just don't want to be defined by by objects,
0: huh, yeah um. <laughs> Speaking of some of these, these objects, are, are there any ones that you like feel like, okay, maybe I'll stop when I get this? Or is this just become a lifestyle now of, of kind of like shepherding on?
1: Yeah, no, it's, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm very happy. Like I'm, I'm very content. Like there's no, like, like Ben Clymer asked me on talking watches. He goes, yeah. so like, what is your, like, what's the grail thing? Like, I don't have one, you know, I have like, you know, I've, I've been blessed to find things, before they became insanely expensive, you know, and unobtainable, you know, and I'm very happy with that, which gives you kind of a nice calm because when something serendipitously comes into your life, you know, you can say, okay, listen, that's a great thing. I can sell something to get that because I need to make space for it. It'd be nice to kind of trade one thing for another. And I don't, you know, don't have to go too long on, on, you know, one thing. Getting rid of the cars was great because then I started, finding original Volkswagens. So, unrestored Volkswagens and I thought, well, wow, that's a really this is a cool place to be first you can drive them. They're yeah. really part of like kind of growing up in Southern California, part of, you know, that whole lifestyle. The VW vans. So I have a yeah, I have a 23 window bus. It's all original. I've got a 55 Beetle. It's all original. And these cars were worth nothing, you know, like the Beetle was probably worth yeah. $25 in the 70s. And the fact that it wasn't cut up and made into a dune buggy You know, it's, is shocking, but you know, so there's opportunity there. You know, I was looking, you know, I, I'm always digging around for stuff and people know, and a guy, a friend of my guy I play volleyball with called me and said, Hey, I just bought this house in Manhattan beach. And there's a, there's a 71, 2002 TII in the garage. He goes, is that a good car? I said, yeah, no, those are, those are great. He goes, well, come look at it. So I went over there and the car had not been moved since 1985. Oh my God. It's got 50,000 miles on it. It's the perfect color, like right interior. Like, you know, just, you know, it wasn't too close to the beach. So, it, you know, it was, it had been covered. Not too much weather it's damage. kind of like everything yeah. had been covered. And, you know, I thought, oh my God, and the rear end was out. So, but the rear end was sitting on the ground next to the car and it had like the right alloy wheels. And I said, you know, I, I said, God, I really would love to get the car. And so for months. I talked to the guy who owned the car and he knew what it was and was very, you know. Oh, so the car didn't come with the house? No, no, it didn't come with the house. It <laughs> still belonged to the guy you bought the house from. Gotcha. But the guy had to get it out of the garage. And this had gone on. There's been a whole kind of kerfuffle over when this is going to leave the garage. Sure. And so for months, I tried to to get the car. And I was like, like, very fair. Like, i you know, there's no, like again with eBay now, there's no secrets. Yeah. So listen, So I love this car. It's a original car. You know, it's an unrestored car. It's low miles. You've taken great care of it. You know, kind of tell me what you want for it and let's see if we can do it. And went back and forth. And I, listen, I totally respect his decision to keep the car. The guy's going to keep the car and get it running. And so, you know, it was, again, it was the interesting conversations and we, you know, we parted friends and maybe someday he'll, he'll call me again. Two days after that deal didn't happen, mm-hmm. um, I got a call from another friend of mine, a very close friend of mine, and said there's a there's a 1955 Pre-A 356 in a garage in Compton uh, that the owner needs to get rid of today. Wow. And so just when that door closed on the TII, I was able to buy that Pre-A 356 which had also not been moved since the mid, it hadn't been moved in, you know, 32 years. And, uh, it hadn't been moved since 19, it hadn't been moved since, it hadn't been on the road since 1982 Jeez. and is just perfect, complete matching numbers, pre a unmolested car.
0: So, I mean, what, what sort of additional stuff goes into that when you're getting it? I mean, do you. Does it have to get looked over by? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, it's you know, it needs to be roadworthy, right? You know? it's funny because I, I'm, I'm lucky to be friends with a, a guy named Rod Emery, and Rod has a company called Emery Motorsports, and he's the premier. He invented the whole outlaw 356 okay. thing. He restored the um, 356 SL that that was the first Le Mans winner. For Porsche in 1951. It came in second at, at Pebble Beach this year. It was the only Porsche on the concourse. And he's just a great guy. And we'd become friends. And I called him and I said, Listen, I got these pictures of this 356, you know, 55. And he's the expert. He goes, My God, it looks pretty good. He goes, I'll go take a look at it for you tomorrow. Cause I was out of town. And I said, Well, bring a trailer. And so <laughs> he, he did. And we got the car. And so the car now is uh, Rod's putting it back together for me, but it's all there. And so, and
0: you're going to drive it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, it. this car doesn't, doesn't need to be restored. I mean, it's wow. a, it's all there. The interior is great. The body is super straight. The I was looking Rod posted a couple of pictures on, on his Instagram account and like the door gaps are insane. They're perfect. And so to me, it's like, you know, I told him, I said, don't wash it. Cause it's got all the dust on it. I said, we'll put the glass in, we'll clean it. You know, we'll clean the interior, but we're not ever going to wash that car. So I don't <laughs> know if that's really going to happen, but, but right now it's remaining unwashed.
0: So, I mean, we've gone from, um, some of the furniture to cars and, and earlier you were showed me this beautiful, Patek Philippe watch. When did watches enter the picture or, or did this all kind of was a little bit, you know, all around the same time?
1: No, I've always been interested in watches. You know, My dad was always interested in watches and, and, you know, um, you know, I, when I was in college, my one of my college roommates' dads was a jeweler, mm-hmm. and so I mean, we were buying. He said, "You guys should buy some of these early Rolex Sport watches." And I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm kind of old, so like, he goes, "You should buy some of these early Rolex Sport watches." They weren't that popular then. No, right? they yeah. Were, the I mean, we were, were buying subs yeah. for three hundred bucks, two hundred fifty, three hundred bucks, man. and so like, I still have that sub that I bought when I was at UCLA. And so we started buying them then. And I started buying a couple of watches then and wore them. And I loved the idea even then that they were tools, you know, they were, you know, I wasn't interested in dress watches, it was sport watches and, right. and, you know, started, you know, buying some and thinking about them and, you know, that's, you know, early, mid eighties. And so just got lucky and, and found stuff I liked. And, you know, I bought a, I mean, I, I bought my first, you know, kind of six, two, six, three Daytona, um, Panda. Yeah, no, yeah, a Panda um, in 1994, I guess. Okay. And I think I paid, I don't know, I think I paid $4,500 for it.
0: Oh, my. And
1: I thought, I, yeah maybe it may not have even been that much. And I thought I was killing it because I sold it. I sold it to, to Bobby Marin who's a watch dealer in Southern yep. California now. Bobby bought it for like six grand. And I sold it because I was, a, I was buying a Paul Newman um, from a guy and this is like my first even talking about Paul Newman's, right? I bought the Paul Newman, um, for 11, $11,000 and I still have that watch six,
0: three or three, nine, a three, uh, nine. Th- wow.
1: So, yeah. So I, I mean, those were early days and. I just to me it wasn't about like oh this is a collectible watch and I'm buying it for 11 it's going to be worth yeah. you know 10x or more I had no idea I just thought it was a great object and a great story and and Paul Newman it just it was a cool cat and yeah. I feel the same way about Paul Newman as I do about Steve McQueen and so things that they touch are like you know kind of you know the fa- the clothing thing actually was a lot inspired by by McQueen by McQueen
0: Was what, what was the, the film that, that did it? Was it Bullet? Was it? It wasn't really even, well,
1: I mean, Bullet's so cool. I mean, you know, all that stuff is cool and, and, you know, Thomas Crown Affair for sure. But like just the stuff, there's a, there's a book of photographs of McQueen and photos of him kind of driving from San Francisco to LA. The William Claxton? Yeah, the Claxton book. Yeah. And there's these shots of him, you know, in these off-white, like in off-white Levi's cords, mm-hmm. you know, Alden shell cordovan penny loafers, you know, a button down and a, you know, a, a like a light yellow cashmere V-neck, you know, and, a, and a barracuda jacket. Yeah. And like, that's what we sold at the store. When I worked at at ease, we'd sold cashmere crewnecks and Gitman button downs and, <laughs> and G9 jackets. And that's a, kind of what we wore. Right. And Alden, shell cordovan pennies. So I still have, I still have the pair that I bought when I worked at at ease. And you know, we'd wear those with um, like really heavy wigwam wool socks. Oh, really? Yeah. And they still fit? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. A lot of people were like, how do I look like McQueen? Or how do I, you know, I mean, I, I've helped like dress people and stuff in the past. And, and I worked with uh, this celebrity at the time and he was like, oh, man, for me, it's all about looking like McQueen. And he's like, but I talked to my wife and she just said that I think it's just more about being in shape than looking like McQueen. queen. Yeah. Because I mean, those guys had rigorous workout routines. Yeah,
1: no, the guy, the guy was, a, he was, he was a stud. I mean, he was like the, he was the real deal. I mean, you know, I, I love that, but you know, he, I mean, you know, it's funny because I've asked people, you know, people have asked me about, oh geez, you know, what should I, I want to buy some items, some. Yeah. Where do wor- I start? Where do I start? I mean, start with just basic, simple stuff. I mean, you know, it's like, um, you know, you think about, you know, like the female equivalents, like, you know, think about what Audrey Hepburn would wear, you know, and Mm -hmm. if you're a guy, it's like, what would McQueen wear? Yeah. And you kind of can't go wrong with a G9 jacket. And I mean, I'll tell you, I've become, you know, finding off-white Levi's 514 cords is non-trivial because they haven't been made in a long time. And there's kind of a, there's kind of a, a, um, like a whip cord version of it now that they make as part of a, you know a special white label collection that oh. I that I try to buy whenever I can find in that off white color.
0: Yeah, I went nuts over the summer uh and I found this Japanese dealer who sells Levi's 501s, but the only way to to buy from him is you basically have to com- like commit to 150 to 200. dollars, And then he and you know which is for five hundred ones, that's relatively inexpensive. But I was trying to find ones from the nineties, right? And so I basically sent him my size, and then like throughout the week, I would just get random packages <laughs> of jeans that he found in his like warehouse in Pennsylvania. Right. He'd send, I mean, and that you know, that's uh, it's really it's tough to uh to beat a good pair of uh, of Levi's. So, um what's you know, you had mentioned some of the stuff about your your dad, and I mean, this this sort of collecting bug and mentality i mean where where did a lot of this this come from i mean because one thing that you haven't said that a lot of other people whom i know who collect is oh it was a great when i sold it or i made it such a killing off it or i did this like all of this comes from this like you know this piece idea
1: yeah i mean it's you know again i i you know i'm not a dealer and you know i don't like to speculate on on stuff you know i would never i i don't think i've ever i mean i've bought things oh that's a good deal but i have to it has to have like that intrinsic value to me that i love it Mm -hmm. there's got to be something about it more than like just opportunistic to flip it like you don't have time to no to do that you know and yeah you know, it's always been about finding the stuff that you know and if my my parents were the same way my you know we grew up in the in Manhattan Beach the architectural pottery factory was in Manhattan Beach so if you okay. know architectural pottery was this great pottery company from the 60s through the late 70s that some of the great architects and designers at the time were designing pretty amazing architectural pieces of pottery you know, for them, hence the name. And, you know, I remember going there as a kid, you know, with my mom as a little kid and she would buy stuff and we had it, we lived with it. And It was just beautiful. They're beautiful objects. Those. And so she collected that. She collected Bauer pottery and, you know, we, Manhattan beach also was the home of Metlock's pottery. So we had two big pottery companies in this little beach town. And so for me today, it's like about, you know, I, the architectural pottery pieces have meaning to me. right Right. and so i i found those i like them and i live with them and when i moved into a house if they don't work i don't keep them i they've gone passed on to to other people and it it was never been about kind of being a you know arbitraging you know collectible items to you know for me yeah but
0: i mean one thing that like you were also doing or at least later is you had started this this blog and also you've kind of um you know you have a a, an not not every week or column in the the Hollywood Reporter right of how you've been kind of like advising men I mean when have you always been like this were you always that guy in the group of your friends where people were asking for advice
1: for- yeah I mean like you know it's so funny cause, like no no like it, it, you know I feel weird like even talking about it because like I never like the guys who I hung out with and grew up with and I hang with now like we don't generally like, talk about hey like you know Oh, that's a great shirt. Where'd you get that shirt? Can I see the label? That's not the usual, (laughs) that's not the usual conversation. You know, the beach is a good, uh, is a good leveler, right? You know, like you kind of got your board shorts on and you know, you're surfing and you kind of earn your waves and you're playing volleyball, you kind of earn your rotations on the court. And it's not a lot about kind of who you are or what you were to work the day before. Right. And, you know, but the grown man style, I mean, this whole idea of grown man style, when I left, I was working in the surf industry And I left and I I went from that to, to Facebook and, you know, I was wearing like ironic t-shirts and board shorts to work. And it felt like so unnatural for me to go from, you know, wearing suits at, you know, in the studio business to that. And then when I joined Facebook, it was, you know, I'm going to kind of define who I am now, and I'm going to get right. back to where this is serious business. I was, you know, for a long time, one of the few people that was touching people outside the company because it was a very small company at the time. And I, I've been wearing a coat and tie at Facebook, you know, ever since. Right. So, yeah. And so the interesting thing is now when I, I, I've been asked to write, I've written that irregular column for Holly Reporter about grown man style. And it's been a little bit about kind of, you know, great items to get. There's things that are curated. And I, I have fun. There's some weird stuff in there. You know, I had a, um, a Chrome Hearts cap for Akiel's lip balm. is the Japanese company. Yeah. They made a cap for Akiel's lip balm tube. <laughs> and I made that as like, okay, and I have one. And I'm like, well, that's, you know, that was a cool, you know, eBay find. And I said, well, you should, this is a must have item for the Oscars. Like if you're gonna go to the Oscars, you know, and you have a bomb, you need to have that. And then people were emailing, like, where can I get this? And, you know, like, like, does that, is that even a thing? And I'm like, oh yeah, it's very important thing. So I have fun with it too. (laughs) And, uh, and then I wrote a column recently about meeting culture between Hollywood and Silicon Valley and just kind of the different rigor That goes into kind of setting up meetings and kind of, you know, part of it, I think around, you know, not just about personal style, but about kind of style as a gentleman in terms of how you, you know, how your preparedness for a meeting, your preparedness for a conversation, you know, with so many conference calls, you know, in people's lives today, I think you actually have to be more prepared than when you had it in face meeting, you know, face to face meeting because, You know, there's so little, you lose so much nuance in body language and inflection. That's You're true. You're not in the room with somebody. Um, and I also think how you show up is really important. I mean, I, I, get, I get incredible service. You know, one, because I try to be really nice. And, and part of our, you know, my mantra for my team and my colleagues at Facebook was to be the best part of another person's day. So I try to be a nice person. Right. But I also get unbelievable service at restaurants and airlines because I to have a coat and tie on. I really believe that.
0: <laughs> no, I think that it's very true. Um when I first moved to New York, I was trying to find places to play music and I was coming here to play music and I would wear like a, a tie and stuff and I'd go into hotels uh and just sit down and like try to play their piano to practice. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty interesting that if I wasn't, you know, like Paul Feig makes the same mm-hmm. joke that the best part of wearing a suit and tie every day is that he can go to any bathroom anywhere yeah. and just walk <laughs> right in. And it, it is true. I mean in in some ways it's, it's tough, uh, you know, because I guess like, you know, everyone wants to be treated the same, but I mean, there's so it, it, I feel so much better when I'm, when I'm a little bit put together. Like when I would wake up sick sometimes when I was younger and my mom would be like, well, put something nice on, you know? And so now like, you know, sometimes if I leave the house in a suit, you know, my wife may be like, you feel okay today?
1: <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> no, my, um. My dad was the same way. I remember being in San Francisco, which, you know, growing up in Southern California, San Francisco was kind of like the, you know, more cosmopolitan, you know, right. kind of big city. I remember being there for a UCLA Cal football game. My dad went to UCLA and graduate school at UCLA. And I went there, my mom. And uh, we were there for a football game. We were in the city for a weekend. My dad didn't have, I mean, we were at the Florsheim store. There was oh, nice. a Floorsheim Imperial store on the cor- on the corner in Union Square. And he was buying a pair of, you know, gunboat, you know, uh, wingtips wingtips yeah. right you know uh, you know that long wings and he didn't have a tie on he goes man i just feel like i can't stand it i don't have a tie on today and it was like saturday <laughs> and so i remember walking to cable car clothes and he buying a Buying a tie so he would feel better, you know about like you know like the, the proper respect for the city. That's right. And my 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 I have a really dear friend named Michael Burns who's the vice chairman of of Lionsgate Pictures, and he you know he had this great line, and I, I use it all the time where he said, you know, if you have a suit on and a clipboard, you can get in anywhere, yeah. and it's absolutely true. Yeah. There you go. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, thank you
0: for your time. We have a few minutes left, but I didn't want to to. Uh past this without mentioning your love and affinity for cameras i mean before we started this you had showed me this minolta which i've never seen before which looks like a spy cam <laughs> when the lens popped out but you also have a, a huge passion for for Leica. um did the camera thing i mean did did this all come on was this more recently the love no Leica, I, it's funny
1: i started i started shooting you know i always i was always like taking pictures when i was a kid i always had a camera and you know, it was always just kind of like the whole process. I mean, that whole kind of zen of loading film. And, and it's very funny because I was on a, a work trip when I was at Fox and with a guy who, an older guy, had taken us on this trip and he had an old, like a, an M2. Right. And I maybe mean, it was an M3. And he goes, Oh, if you want, you know, I never use it. It's hard to use. And the old M3s were hard it's the to use. rangefinder, right? Yeah, it was a rangefinder. It mm-hmm. had no meter. You know, you had to have an external meter. And he goes, You can just use it. And so I used it for a long time and, and, you know, then like, you know, he passed away oh. and like, I didn't know what to do with the camera. So I, <laughs> I, um, I, I tried to contact some of his family and no one knew anything about it. And they said, just keep it. So I kind of thought the statute of limitations had kind of run out, you know, this was kind of like, sure. okay. And then when my, right before my, my twin daughters were born and they're 21 now, uh, a guy said to me, he goes, you, you should really, he goes, you know, your photography is great. And you're using this, this. You're shooting with this old Leica camera. He goes, you should really buy a new Leica and just take pictures of your kids with Leica. And so digital Leica at the time. No, no, right? I mean, oh, okay. no. 1995. They were born in oh, 95, gotcha. so there was yeah, no yeah. digital Leica then. And so I bought an M. I bought an M6 and started, you know, and for my kids. So their, you know, their entire life, I've never taken a picture of them with anything other than my wow. iPhone or a or a Leica. <laughs> and just always, you know, was again. Always felt the bodies were fairly fungible, but the glass was collectible, yeah. And, and it really, you know, have kept not a lot of lenses because I think that kind of complicates your life. Sure, I'm a 50 millimeter guy, and so I think that's Cardio Bresson always shot 50 millimeter, it's the right focal length, I think, for an M rangefinder. Mm-hmm. And I've been shooting a lot of vintage um cinema lenses from the 30s, 40s, and 50s right. that have been converted to like a mount because, yeah, there's there was. Was
0: it Leica that did this, that allowed the mount to be made, or, or my? I...
1: No, these are guys, these are like intrepid, you know, lens guys in Hong Kong and in Japan. Right. Um, uh, Miyasaki MS Optical in Tokyo, has done amazing conversions to put Leica mounts on some of these early lenses. Some of the lenses had a Leica screw mount, thread oh, mount, okay. which you could then convert to a you know, to the bayonet mount of the current cameras. But a lot of these lenses I shoot with now are early lenses, you know, that were cinema lenses. They weren't, they were movie camera lenses that have really, really, they're really soft. They have a really shallow depth of field. They render colors. Real life Instagram filter. Yeah. They they render, (laughs) they render colors really weird and they're beautiful. And so, and that was a big thing in Japan and in, in Hong Kong. And, you know, I, uh, I've tried to stay low pro on it because I, I don't want this supply to run out. But the, <laughs> but the word has gotten out a little bit. I was in Hong Kong last week and I met with some of the nutty dealer collectors of vintage cinema lenses when I was there. But no, I think the, the camera stuff is cool. This, this little Minolta TC1 is the camera you were talking about. There was a time in the mid-90s where Contacts and Minolta, yeah. um, I think even Fuji, there was this race for the last of the kind of expensive film cameras and these cameras were all titanium bodies you know that shot 35 millimeter film it's about the same height as a roll of film and these were 1500 cameras in the mid 90s and now you can buy them um you know for a few hundred dollars so wow. and they're great yeah no it's it's cool camera yeah, a, yeah it's cool <laughs> well uh
0: th- i mean we're, we're just about done but was there any other stuff that you want to add or mention that i didn't ask you about or
1: No, I mean, listen, it's just an honor to be, you know, to talk to you about this stuff. You've had great people on the, on the, on your podcast. And I I feel, uh, I feel honored to be part of it. I think the, you know, there is something to be said about not hoarding stuff. I don't need to have one of, I need to have every Daytona. I want to have a, a couple of the emblematic ones. I bought. I have two. I have these Pelican cases. That aren't fancy watch boxes. I have sure. two, two Pelican cases that have watch inserts in them that hold twelve watches. And that's to me, that's my limit. Like, in twelve watches sounds insane, but in the world of no. collecting, yeah, It's, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> it's, very it's nothing. <laughs> but to me, again, you know, I feel like I in the last couple of months, I think I sold six or seven watches. Some to colleagues of mine or former colleagues of mine. You know, in the tech world. And I'm so happy to see them wearing them and enjoying them. And I picked up, you know, then serendipitously I was able to pick up a couple of pieces. So, you know, again, I would have been, it would have been really, you know, tough for me to own more than what would fit in those two boxes because like psychically i have to have just that number and no more yeah. or i've kind of violated my self-imposed rule and i feel so nice i actually have two empty spaces in the box right now
0: well what are you gonna if you don't mind what's one of the ones you yeah, want to fill in there's nothing i mean listen it's, it's, gonna, be, go. it's <laughs> gonna be like
1: finding the old porsche it's just gonna be serendipity right someday someone's gonna call and say hey i found this thing or i'll find it somewhere you know i'll find it searching for it somewhere and i'll say you know what i, I I sold these other pieces. It makes sense to get this. And if I had a full box of stuff, then I wouldn't do it. So, Well, well, thanks a lot. Thank you so much
0: for coming on. This was awesome. No, thank you. All right, we'll see you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Blamo, a podcast with an exclamation point. Thanks to my guest, Matt Jacobson, for talking with me today. If you like what you heard, leave a review. It goes a long way. Subscribe and listen to new and archive episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find me elsewhere on the web on Instagram and Facebook at Blamopodcasts, or send me an email at blamopodcastgmail.com. At Thanks a lot. We'll see you.